word of prayer, and we're going to go into John chapter 2 and uh, see what God has for us tonight. Amen. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you for this opportunity to be together. I pray, Lord, that something that would be said or done tonight, Lord, would give new revelation to your word into the spirits of your people. We'll be careful to give you praise and glory and honor. Use this time, Lord, to help us grow in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you for being here tonight. And there's a few more that will be trickling in, it looks like. So we're thankful for that. Uh, want to just remind you uh, for next week to go ahead and plan on reading John chapter 3. We'll be done with chapter 2 tonight and we'll work on chapter 3 next week. And uh, we're excited about what God is doing. I also want to let you know uh, I'm working this week to get the videos of the previous weeks ready and up on our Facebook, or not Facebook, but our YouTube page. So hopefully by this, the end of this week, they'll be up and available for those that missed other uh, lessons. And so I know there's a couple that are not going to be here tonight that we're asking about uh, the recordings of it as well. So uh, we'll be working on that this week to get that up as much as possible. Praise God. I've love this book, uh, the book of John. It's probably, I've said it before, it's probably my favorite um, for all of the different things that are in there. But again, as we go forward from chapter one, we have to remember as we're reading in chapter two and three and four and so on, the foundations that the apostle established in chapter one. And namely, um, basically three main foundations we've talked about. One being that uh, God, the reason for creation, the reason behind creation, the creator, became man, became flesh, and took upon him uh, the form of a servant. Uh, remember 1 Timothy 3.16 says that God was manifest in the flesh. And that was the first part. And his humanity which we call Jesus, his humanity, the man Christ Jesus, ushered in to the world grace and truth. Uh, I should say full grace, because there's grace in the Old Testament, but it's fully revealed in the humanity of Christ. And uh, then truth as well. Truth is not a subject. Truth is a person. His name is Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life that we'll talk about in John 14. So we have to remember also, so those are the foundations that will carry throughout the entirety of the book of John. And, uh, and quite frankly, for those of you that like to go crazy and study, you can carry those same foundations right into the book of Revelation as well. Because the book of Revelations even starts out the very first line, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We like to say that Revelation is the end time book and it's revealing the end times, but really it's revealing Jesus Christ. And uh, the foundations that he writes about in Revelation, he, he establishes in John chapter 1. And then just a couple other things that we need to remind ourselves as we go into chapter 2, because we're going to go into some narrative type things in chapter 2. But we have to understand, again, who John is writing to. He's not writing primarily to a Jewish culture. He is writing to the church of around 100 A.D., looking back 
at what happened. And the church in 100 was not a Jewish church. The Gentiles, of Acts chapter 10 had already taken place. Uh, the Gentiles, in fact, there was probably more Gentiles in the church than there were Jews at the time, especially where John was writing. And so he's not writing to speak to the Jewish culture primarily. He's writing to speak to you and I, the non-Jewish culture, the Gentile culture. And so we have to remember that as we're reading this. And then again, a reminder, because he's writing it, looking back at what happened 70 years really after Christ, uh, around 100 AD is when he's writing this, that he is writing not a detailed, it's, this is not a detailed historical book. Okay, this is a book of Revelation. And he picks and chooses different episodes within the time of Christ to reveal who Jesus is to us. So this first one in chapter 2, we see a little bit about Jesus with Nathaniel and Andrew in chapter 1. But chapter 2, it's starting at verse number 1. It says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. And then verse 11, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. And so we're going to start chapter 2 with this narrative or this story about this marriage celebration, if you will. Now, we John writes his book throughout the book of John. He writes it in two ways. He writes it first by just telling the simple story. And this is what this is. It's just a simple story just on the surface. He's talking about something that happens at a marriage ceremony, a marriage celebration, and it's something that that uh, is just kind of a narrative. It's a simple, nothing real deep. But John doesn't just leave it there. He puts some certain details into his stories, causing those that read this to go deeper. And so there's some deeper things in this marriage, uh, this miracle of the water being turned into wine uh, that, that we have to grasp and understand and uh, that's what we want to do tonight because it's a little bit deeper. First of all, if you notice in the very first verse, he identifies that it's Cana of Galilee instead of Cana in its Coelho, Syria. Uh, I think we're Tuela, Syria. I don't know how to actually say it, but it's in Syria. But this was a specific village in Galilee that was being referenced. And the reason why that's important is 
because it's close to where Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Okay. In fact, um, obviously Mary, Jesus' mother, must have had a particular connection to the family that was celebrating this marriage because she was there and she didn't hesitate to stick her nose in somebody else's business. Mm -hmm. So obviously she knew or she was part of, maybe even part of the hosting committee, if you will. And, um, and Jesus, the Bible says he was called and his disciples, which meant that he was invited. So he probably knew the family as well. And uh, so we get that all from the fact that they were invited and, and to be there, but also the fact that because it's not like you can, like when I got married, my whole family flew from here to Delaware, okay? Couldn't really do that back then. <laughs> so it wasn't like you were going to go across the world to, to get to a wedding. So John is letting people know this is right close. This is, there's, there's some intricacies that we have to understand. And some of that is simply this. If Jesus is invited, Jesus shows up. Amen. Unfortunately, too many don't invite Jesus. Mm -hmm. And when they don't invite Jesus, they don't realize that they're not inviting the miracle worker. Mm -hmm. The answer to any problems that may arise. And that Jesus is close and uh, the mother is close. Mary is close to this. Uh, area here so she she may have had she, she obviously had the authority to tell the servants what to do and the servants listened so she was that close to them now in those days in that time a marriage was really a notable experience or an occasion that was magnified beyond other occasions if you will uh, in fact, it was in the Jewish law that the wedding of a virgin would take place on a Wednesday. Forget Saturdays. Mm -hmm. Would take place on a Wednesday. And the wedding ceremony would, itself would take place late in the evening after a big feast. Which if we did that today, everybody would fall asleep. <laughs> but that's how they did it. And then a newly married couple did not go away for their honeymoon. They stayed at home and for a week they kept an open house. People could come and go as they pleased all week long. And uh, we do everything opposite of the way that they did it. You know, we do it and we get a, away for a week. And they said, no, we're going to open up the house to anybody that wants to. And so we are looking here when it says that there was a marriage, uh, it, it wasn't just you have to take the picture of this out of 2021, you know, where we have oftentimes on a Friday evening, we'll have a rehearsal and on Saturday we'll have the ceremony. After the ceremony, we'll have a reception. After the reception, the bride and groom disappear for a week and uh, then they come back and then everybody stays away until they can get their house set up. And, uh, but in the Jewish culture, they would get married on a Wednesday after having a big feast and then for the next week it was an open house and so people were coming so this wasn't a one-day occasion it was a seven-day occasion it was a grand party if you will and they were supposed to have supplied enough wine to last not just for the party on Wednesday night and the feast but it was supposed to last that whole week because uh, 
you, we say an open house for a week. The village probably didn't have that many people. So it was people there all the time for a week enjoying free food <laughs> and drink and other things. And so Jesus had probably been there a couple of days, if you will. And uh, so and, and so now we've, we're looking at this full week-long celebration and they're running out. So say, we don't have an exact day, but say the, the feast happened on a Wednesday and the ceremony happened on a Wednesday and they're now getting to Saturday and they're realizing we've got three or four more days yet and we don't have enough wine to supply for the people that are going to be coming. And to a Jewish feast, wine was essential. In fact, the rabbis would say without wine, there is no joy. And these people were not drunks okay so don't misunderstand me and and there is a difference in scripture between wine and drunkenness okay god is against drunkenness wine is obviously there in scripture and really when uh according to manners and customs if you will um this was probably three parts water to, to two parts or one part alcohol uh, or grape juice that had been fermented, and, and so it's and, and it's it was well known in that in the Middle East in that culture, it's well known that hospitality was a sacred thing. Okay, we have to understand what that means. Okay, so as I talk about that, turn over to, I think it's Hebrews chapter thirteen. So the writer of Hebrews, it, it, when we understand the manners and customs of the time, certain scriptures can stand out a little bit more. So Hebrews chapter 13, look at verse number two. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And, and, and so the, the principle for hospitality being sacred was the Jews expected the opportunity to host the angels unaware and so because hospitality was so sacred at the time that they would have freaked out had they not had wine to offer the guests that would come even if it was a guest that's been there now 10 times it, it was it was so sacred the hospitality concept was so sacred to their understanding of the culture that the family would have been ridiculed, highly criticized if they were to run out of wine. And so we see this taking place. And so when, when Jesus changes the water to wine, it's not just the miracle of the water turning to wine. There is some depth to this miracle. He is saving this family from the shame of running out on their hospitality. Okay. Now, for us today, hospitality is somewhat different because if we run out, we send somebody to the store. Couldn't just do that back in those days. Okay. And hospitality isn't as sacred a thing anymore. Maybe it should be, but it isn't any, anymore um, because we have created things and introduced things into our culture that goes against the concepts of hospitality. 
Let me just name a couple. Garage door opener. Okay? Unless you're like us, that we have a nice garage door opener, we just can't park in the garage. <laughs> but but when, when we started creating garage door openers, gated communities, privacy fences, when I was growing up, which wasn't that long ago, but when I was growing up, the we had our house and we had some chain link fence to keep some dogs in, but we had no privacy fences all along. I mean, I had 15 moms in the neighborhood because I could go to any house and any any lot or any uh, family's uh, yard and, and have fun. And we would run through, we, you know, even people that didn't have kids, they let us play ball in their yard. And so uh, for our baseball field growing up, we had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight yards that were part of it. And we had the street and then we used the yards as as places to go we don't have that all of a sudden the privacy fences came up and now we don't know our neighbors and now we don't have that concept of hospitality and some communities have tried to reinvigorate the concept of hospitality with the, the uh, Tuesday nights out or whatever they call them um, in the summer things of that nature but uh, the, but in these days John is revealing something to us that Jesus even cares about the little things that would bring shame to an entire family. And that goes, and there again, it's under the backdrop of the great creator becoming a man and caring so much about the little things. We would think God would just be worried about whether or not the, the planets were aligned or the sun didn't get too close to the earth or too far from the earth, but he cared right down to the point where this family was facing shame and ridicule and criticism because their sacredness of hospitality was going to run dry. And so Mary steps in and begins to, to do some things. Mary comes to Jesus and Jesus seems to rebuke her. Now, if I would use this terminology with my mom growing up, I would have been rebuked. Much more than rebuked, probably. <laughs> Okay, when he says, woman, what have I to do with thee? But in all actuality, this was a converse, common conversation piece. It was, a, it was commonly spoken in this way. When it was uttered angrily and maybe bitterly or sharply, it did indicate disagreement and, and reproach. It, it did cause problems, reprimand probably. But when used gently, it indicated not so much a reproach, but a misunderstanding. And I believe that Jesus was able to say basically to Mary, don't worry, you don't quite understand what's going on yet. Just leave things to me and I'll settle them in my own way. And we're going to talk a little bit here in a minute because uh, he's addressing some things when it's talking about mine hour has not yet come. Uh, we're going to come back to that here in just a second. But the word woman, in fact, is also misleading. It's the same word that Jesus used with Mary and John when Mary was, or when Jesus was on the cross and said, woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. Okay, so it's a tender term. It's the way uh, uh, it was in that day and age, the concept of calling somebody by the name or, or calling a woman was a uh, tender way of speaking 
Homer used it in uh, his writings about his wife Penelope Augustus, addressed Cleopatra the same way. So it was not a denigrating way of speaking to uh, his mother when he said, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. Uh, some other things of details that John brings out in this passage uh, as, we, as we're going through, and, and I'm gonna kind of bounce back and forth just a little bit here, but look at verse six. There were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. Um, it's interesting. Hold on just a second. I'll come back to that in just a second. But it's interesting here in verse number six that he is explaining to his Gentile or Greek readers, this is the reason why the, because remember he's writing about a Jewish cult, culture, not cult, culture. <laughs> don't want to get that on the tape. It's a culture. He was talking about a Jewish occasion, a Jewish feast. And so he's explaining to the Gentile reader, there were six water pots there because that was used for uh, purifying. Uh, and, and there's a couple of things that uh, we see. These, how many, know, how many knows how much a firkin is? How many have ever used a firkin? <laughs> What'd you say? Close to it. <laughs> That's the whole water pot. A firkin is between eight and nine gallons. So the water pot has two or three firkins apiece. So that's where they get that, that number of the amount of gallons. So there was probably anywhere between eight or between 27 uh, and 16 gallons in each water pot of water. Now, he goes on to say that there's six of them. So that's a whole lot of water. Okay, you're looking at whatever, just, just say 20 gallons, you're looking at 120 gallons of water that's getting ready to be changed over to wine. Um, and, and so, but we have to understand there's some reasons also, at least why I believe that Jesus told them to fill them with water, okay? Uh, remember here again, we're talking about the way John wrote, he wrote the narrative and then he comes back and he gives us some, uh, in, in his details, He's revealing to the Greek reader what's really going on in the passage. It's not just a story for the Greeks to listen to. It's something that the Greeks, because the Greeks, remember, were the thinkers. They, they analyzed everything. Uh, they, were, they were based in Gnosticism, which is a deep looking for, but they don't believe that they could ever find it. So he's revealing something in his, in his details. And I believe that there's a reason why Jesus had them put water in there and didn't just put wine in there. Okay, now Jesus could have just put wine. He didn't have to put water in there first. Okay? Because he could have just spoken the wine into existence. Okay? But he doesn't. He, he puts water in there. Now water in, and now I'm getting to your notes here finally. Water was required for two things, and this is the concept of purifying Okay, uh, number one there, it was required for cleansing the feet. 
on entry to the house. It was required for cleansing the feet on entry to the house. Remember, they walked everywhere. And I don't know when, I haven't ever researched it, but I don't know when the first sock was created. But they went barefoot or they went in sandals, and so their feet were very, very dirty when they would arrive at anywhere that they were going. And so it was the part of the culture of hospitality was to wash the feet of those that entered into the house. And it's the reason why when Jesus washes the disciples' feet later, uh, it's such a powerful thing because somewhere along the line, the servants didn't get it and didn't do it. And Jesus steps forward as the servant that was supposed to wash feet and, and serves the disciples that were there in that upper room. Uh, but if you, you did not allow somebody to enter your home with dirty feet, not because you were worried about the house getting dirty, but because it was an act of hospitality to wash that person's feet. Okay, now some of us would be in a lot of trouble if we had to do that still today. But it was part of the purifying process of the Jews. And I don't know that the Greeks and Gentiles understood that because this is what John is trying to explain. And he says it's required for the feet. The second one, it's required for hand washing. It was required for hand washing. The hands and the feet. And if either one of them were still dirty, the whole body was unclean. In fact, strict Jews were so adamant about their cleanliness or the purifying of the hands and the feet that they washed their hands before and after and in between the courses of food that they were going to partake of. And if this washing did not take place, they were considered to be technically unclean and so this amount that's why there's such a vast amount of water that was there was because there was a week-long hospitality event that feet and hands needed to be washed on a consistent basis now it does not say and I won't even presume that it happens but this water I'm hoping was filled from the well that was changed to wine but even not it could have been just dirty water that Jesus filled and changed it to wine. And it was still better than the original. Flavor. Yeah, flavor. <laughs> um, now, it, it's interesting to know also um, in verse number seven, now tying to verse number six, that Jesus says, fill the water pots with water and they fill them up to the brim. I think John makes this distinction that they were filled to the brim for so that the people that knew it would be impossible to add anything else. There was no doubt in the servants which knew it that it was only water in those water pots. That there wasn't anything else. There wasn't a magic trick. They knew that they had filled that up to the brim where it would not be able to add anything else. And so when the governor of the feast tasted the water, he noted it that it was better than the original and the Bible says this is the first miracle that Jesus does, the first time he shows his glory. And uh, I find it interesting with this water, though, uh, being filled to the brim. It lets me know that 
not only did Jesus come to the rescue of this family from criticism and ridicule, but he didn't do it in small measure. He really did it to overflowing. He, he did it to the brim. Okay? And uh, that, that, that speaks volumes that he would do that. So, uh, in your notes here, I want to note three things here about the water into wine and uh, a little bit more depth into this story that we're reading. Uh, number one there, under B, we note when it happened. It's interesting to me that it happened at a wedding ceremony. Because the first institution that God created in the Garden of Eden was the marriage institution. Male and female. Father, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. And so now as he's getting ready to, uh, there, there's a principle in scripture called the power of the first thing. Okay, and, and it's an establishment of first thing, and it carries through. I believe that Jesus, through the writing of John, John is revealing that this is the first miracle, and the Jews would connect that to the very beginning of the first things. If it was that important there, now Jesus shows up for his first big hurrah, and it's a wedding ceremony. And uh, at that time, um, Again, some of this comes from manners and customs studying, but at that time, a lot of the religious world had already started to become very formal and very somber. Joy and celebration weren't really viewed as religious activities. It, was, it, it had already started even, um, well, it's part of the reason I believe that the religious culture of that day missed Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come formally. He didn't come uh, somberly. He came with the angels singing in heaven, the star shining brightly, and all of the things that are going on. Uh, that's, how, that's how the Lord shows up on the scene. And so I think that's one of the reasons why there was such a disconnect between uh, Jesus and the religious leadership of that day. C.H. Spurgeon said it this way. Sepulchral tones may fit a man to be an undertaker, but Lazarus is not called out of his grave by hollow moans. It wasn't a somber thing. It was a celebration. Jesus refuted for the argument that John is making to the Greek that God is not some distant creature that's off in the distance that you can't know, but that he is very close and he enjoys being around people. He, he wants that fellowship and that connection. Jesus, by, by creating this miracle, and it's the first one he does, at a way, he is declaring to all time and eternity, I want fellowship with people. And not only that, uh, I believe that, uh, and I've shared this before, but when the Bible says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost, that's not talking about people. <coughs> The lost isn't people. He knows where everybody's at all the time. If, he's, if he doesn't, he's not God. But what was lost was communion with people. When Adam and Eve sinned, that communion was broke. That relationship was broke. That's what Jesus was. What came to the earth for was to find that. 
He, he knew where people were. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree before he spoke to Nathaniel. Okay? And God sees all things and knows all things. And so I wasn't physically lost, but there was a brokenness in the relationship that I had with God that that's why Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That is that communion with, with people. So we know when this water turning into wine happened. We know where it happened. Again, I find it interesting that God does things over and over again in certain ways. When Jesus was born, he could have been born in a palace and he wasn't. He could have had, you know, the royal decrees as the king of the Jews as he was born, like we have some when royalty is born today, but he doesn't. And now in this very first miracle, it's not in Jerusalem. It's not in the center of Jewish culture. It's not in the temple. It's not with the rabbis, but it's with a small family, if you will, in a small village, not some extravagant royal banquet, but just a simple home is where Jesus manifests his glory the first time. And again, when you take the foundation that we established in the chap first chapter of John, when he's revealing that the great God that created everything came, became a baby so that it could connect us to him, this is, he, he's carrying that on here by saying he even went so far as to do his first miracle and reveal glory the first time in just a small setting with intimate people. He was trying to make a way. He's not trying to set up his, his kingdom is being set up, but it's not a kingdom like man expects. Mm -hmm. And the Greek reader, as John is writing, the, the, the Greek Christian, if you will, in the church that he was writing to, I believe would, would recognize, okay, Jesus manifested forth his glory and that manifestation took place in a home. And it spoke volumes, I believe. To the Jew, it may not have spoken as many volumes or as loud as it did to the Greek, but because the Jews always expected, or a Jewish Christian, I should say, because the Jews still didn't recognize Christ. But the Jewish Christian that was serving Christ, they expected the Messiah. And they expected him to come in. Now they expected him to take over, and so when he didn't do that right away, but the disciples were seeing things that were different, the people were starting to see things that were different and they were connecting the dots. But to a Greek believer in 100, John is reaching back and he's saying, you've got this philosophy, remember the docetism, all of the emanations that were out there in that, that concept back then. And you've, you've got this God that's way that can't be touched. That's, I'm trying to tell you, Mr. Greek believer, that God became a man and that man just went to a home to manifest his glory for the first time. That's how close the God of creation wants to get with people. That's how intimate the God that spoke everything into existence wants to get with his people. So that's the where it happened. And then number three, the why it happened. We've already talked about hospitality, but it would have been humiliation for that family had they run out of wine. And I, I like this statement. I want to, to, to read it. 
It says this, nearly everyone can do the big thing on the big occasion, but it takes Jesus to do the big thing on a simple, homely occasion like this. And that's really so true. You know, when we have some big event, we're pretty good at making sure that that big event is done big. But sometimes to do the big thing in a simple manner, you know, if, if we have somebody come over for dinner, you know, it's not going to be McDonald's in our house. It's, it's, it's not going to be something, my wife is going to do it up well. She's going to, to have probably some kind of a salad, some kind of an entree, even a dessert, and, and do a big event because she's got people coming, okay? The flip side is to do that big thing when it's a small setting. And that's what Jesus does. You know, we're expecting, we expect Jesus to come riding on the white horse. We expect Jesus to come taking control. But when Jesus stoops down and writes on the dirt, or when Jesus stoops down and calls the children into his lap, that, that's, that's where God really shines, is when he does the big thing in a small setting. Does that make sense? Okay, there's two things in this passage also that we learn about Mary's faith in Jesus. And number one here, instinctively, Mary turned to Jesus when something went wrong. We would do well. Now, we have to remember, Jesus is probably around 30 years old at this time. And so the Bible tells us at the very beginning, and I believe that it was a principle that Mary probably carried throughout her life, it says that she pondered these things in her heart. Talking about the prophecies when they brought Jesus to the temple when eight days after he was born. And she and the prophecies that came forth, she, the Bible says she pondered. I think she was thinking about all those things, not just one time. The concept of pondering means she's been thinking about it over and over and for the last 30 years. And now she sees an opportunity to be mom and say, okay, Jesus, here it is. Fastball right down the middle. Mm -hmm. You can hit it right out of the park. Okay? Instinctively, she knew. Now, Jesus says it wasn't time for his hour. We're going to discuss that in just a couple minutes uh, here. But instinctively, Mary knew, okay, you, I almost get this sense. He was a 30-year-old that was still living at home. And I think Mary was to the point where saying, okay, Jesus, now's the time. It's time to leave the nest. Even though in the back of her mind, she knew what that meant. But she, uh, being the person that I believe she was just by reading her and, and reading about her and knowing what she did and who she became, I believe instinctively she knew that Jesus was the only one that was going to be able to help this situation out. And then number two there, even when Mary did not understand what Jesus was going to do, she still believed in him and she turned to the servants and told them to do whatever Jesus told them to do. So let me say it this way. I believe that if Jesus had decided not to turn the water into wine, Mary would have been okay. Because when Jesus said, woman, 
you, you don't know what you're asking. My hour's not yet come. She did not even respond to Jesus. She just turned to the servants and said, whatever he tells you to do, that's what you're going to do. Wouldn't we be wise when we ask Jesus to do something and he responds to us, well, not right now. What do we usually do? Oh, but God, we got to have this happen. It's, I need this miracle now. I need this miracle now. I need this. I need that. Now. And we fight with him. What if we did what Mary did and just turn and say, basically, okay, the situation around us, you just do whatever he says. Release it to him. I believe that Mary turned and walked from the room and said, whatever happens, happens. It's on your shoulders, Jesus. Which is what God wants us to do for him, to him on all occasions. Uh, the, uh, First Peter says in this word, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. That's what he's really, that's what the book of Proverbs means when it says, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him is to do what Mary did here. Even though Mary didn't understand what Jesus may have been saying, she says, okay, you've said it. Now you just do what you're going to do. And servants, just do what Jesus tells you to do. I think if Jesus told the servants to go on vacation, they would have gone on vacation. I, I think if, if Jesus would have said, well, disciples were out of here. They can do what they need to do. I'm not bailing them out. I'm not doing the miracle. I'm, I'm gone. She would have been fine with that. Does that, does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? And so we learn a little bit deeper about Mary and how we can apply her character to our situation. When we don't have the answer and we're getting ready to face something that we don't want to face, we shouldn't be arguing with the Lord. We should just say, Jesus. And he may say, well, not right now. And we need to be able to say, okay, situation, it's, it's in his hands. You just do what Jesus tells you to do. And I'm going to just take care of life. It's, it's, a, it's a deeper understanding in the passage of scripture that we see. Uh, and then this passage also tells us something about Jesus. And this isn't in your notes here. Um, all through the gospels, Jesus talks about his hour. In John 7, verse 6 and 8, it's the hour of his emergence as the Messiah. In John chapter 12, it's the hour of his crucifixion and his death. He saw his life not against the shifting background of time, but he saw his life against the steady background of eternity. So when he says in this passage, mine hour is not yet come, he has the big picture in mind. Okay, now why does he go ahead and perform the miracle? Because the miracle working isn't about the hour of his glorification. Okay, the miracles that he does, the things that he does in his life and in his ministry is peeling back bit by bit. Because if he would have revealed everything to the disciples in one fell swoop, the disciples would have never believed him. Okay, that's why we see over and over in the Gospels when Jesus does something like it does here in chapter two and the disciples believed in him. Okay, so he, it's not that Mary prize a miracle out of Jesus. 
and his time is, and Ben's time, if you will. But Jesus is letting her know something that his hour had not yet come, but that hour is full revelation. That hour is because there's coming a day when he will be revealed as Messiah, according to chapter 7. His death and his crucifixion will be revealed. The day of his return, the hour of his return, no man knows. And things of that nature. So over and over throughout scripture, there's certain aspects of the life of Christ and the, 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 the concept of time that lets us know that there are certain parameters in which God will work. I preach a message and I got the title from a preacher several years ago. And because uh, that's kind of how sometimes I operate. I'll hear a title. And I'll write the title down, and then later on, sometime down the road, a message forms around the, the title. So I don't know, I can't remember what the preacher preached, but I know what his title was. And that title was this, When God Runs Out of Time. Because I believe that God has a calendar that's been established. And the reason, there's, there's a couple of reasons why I believe his calendar is established. First of all, because the Bible says he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So if it was already established then, there's a clock that's established by the Lord. And uh, I believe that John is throwing this in there, or Jesus is saying this here, is to let people know this isn't the main thrust of who I am. But yet we get so consumed with miracle signs and wonders. I have this feeling that if we would just get closer to Jesus, we would see more miracles. But we spend so much time praying for miracles that we don't, and we don't spend so, as much time praying for Jesus. If we would just keep, keep pray more for Jesus, the miracles will follow because he can't help it. That's who he is. Okay. And uh, I also believe that. Uh, Part of this is also, again, in reference to chapter 1 in the fact that the Greek believers, remember, he's, he's trying to reach them, and he says to them, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Okay? In other words, Jesus isn't ready to be revealed yet. So what does that say about John chapter 1? When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, what he's saying is, listen, I know who I am, God manifest in the flesh. It's not time for me yet to reveal everything that I am. Okay? And can I just tell you that he hasn't totally been revealed even yet? If you read 1 Corinthians 15. When all his enemies will be put under his feet, then he will be revealed in full. Until we get there, we won't know all of it. Until we get there, we see through a glass darkly. But then we see him face to face. And First John says this: We don't know what we shall be like, but we know that or we don't know what we shall be. What we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I think that's chapter three, verse two. Um, there's a couple other things that I want to pull out of this before we move on to verse twelve. Again, I don't believe. God does things accidentally in Scripture. Okay? Verse number six, he identifies that there are six water pots of stone. Now, according to the Jewish 
point of view, numbers mean things. The number seven is a number which is complete and perfect. And the number six is a number of unfinished or imperfect. And so referring back to John chapter one, John is showing us the water pots is the imperfect aspect of things by saying that there's only six. And when Jesus not only turns them into wine, he also turns the imperfection of that, which is the law, if you will, into the perfection of grace. So let me back up just a little bit. Remember when we talked in verse uh, chapter one, verse number 15, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And verse 14, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Okay. Remember when we were talking th back then, uh, when we talked about grace being ushered in and that the law couldn't, wasn't, wasn't the thing that could save us, wasn't the thing that could change us, but that when he ushered grace in, grace became the, the means necessary for us to be transformed uh, into his image. And so now he's even taking it a step further and he's putting in that there's six or the unfinished, imperfect deal. But Jesus will still deal with you if you're imperfect, unfinished, and he'll change you and make you better than you were before. Amen. And it's another reason why I believe he uses water. Because water is used in several different rituals, if you will. One of them is baptism. And it's the changing, it's the transforming, it's the transformation. Now, it's interesting to me also, uh, again, this is through historical research, that the Greeks also had a story similar to this one. Dionysus was the Greek god of wine. And they believed that this god had at one time turned the water into wine in the secrecy of a closed room. And so John was saying to me, you have your stories and your legends about your gods. They're only stories and you know that they're not really true. But Jesus came to do what you have always dreamed that your gods would be able to do. So remember, he's writing to a Greek believer. And the Greeks were known for their mythology. And uh, so John takes stories like this about Jesus and uses them to reveal to a Greek believer your myth is actually reality but while you trusting in Dionysus it's really Jesus and Paul does the same thing in the book of Acts remember when he goes to Mars Hill and he goes to the, un, uh, the unknown God he says I'm getting ready to declare to you you've got all these other gods I'm getting ready to declare to you the unknown God so even those at Mars Hill understood that there was a God that they did not know. And Paul says, I'm going to introduce you to him. And he's, he, you're, you're going to find that he's personal where these others aren't. Same thing here. John is taking the Greek and the Greek reader will recognize Dionysus in this. And John is using it to say, listen, you weren't entirely wrong. There is a God that will change water into wine, but it's not Dionysus. It's Jesus. Again, the revealing. Mm -hmm. Remember, constantly in this book of John, and, and I think that's why this book excites me more than most books, is because it's not just talking about, it's the revealing of who our God is. All right, praise God. All right, before we go into verse 12, is there any questions or comments on this first part of the passage?
I did really good or really muddied it up. What's that? Yeah. All right, let's go to verse 12 to 16. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his, and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things, hence make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Um, John shows the cleansing of the temple. That's what this is considered at the beginning. The other gospels show the cleansing at the end. Okay, and, and so there's been this in theological circles, quote unquote, in inaccuracy uh, in scripture. And so there's, there's some different explanations, and I don't have these in your notes. I'm just going to touch on them. I believe this. I believe the first suggestion is, is kind of where I lean, and that is Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end. It, it, to me, it's the easiest explanation. Um, other people have said, well, John's right, the other three are wrong. Um, it's it suggested that when John died, he left his gospel not completely finished, and so somebody else finished it. Um, and then the last one, we must remember that John is interested in the truth more than the facts, which doesn't line up for me either. Um, and so I believe that uh, it happened probably twice. And when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, um, he sees what's supposed to be holy full of profanity, mm. profane things. And if you want to get a holy God angry all through scripture, it's when that which is supposed to be holy is treated profanely. And uh, I believe that Jesus had a holy anger come over him when he saw, number one, part of the reason he did it is because he saw um, crooks for the most part. They sold oxen and sheep and doves and the people set up inspections to look at the animals in order to test for blemishes and these inspectors would would fail the sacrifice and they'd have to go buy a different sacrifice. It was a, it was a racket is what it was. And Jesus got a little irritated and so he made a, a whip and he just cleared the temple and made a statement, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Now remember last couple of weeks in chapter one, we've been talking that father-son relationship, which is deity and humanity. Jesus, is Jesus here in his humanity is recognizing that the temple is a divine entity. Or it rep I shouldn't say it is, it represents a divine entity. Okay, obviously the building's not divine, but it represents a divine entity. 
That's why it says in Corinthians, know you not that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost. Okay? When we are born of the Spirit, we become temples of deity. We could not do that without his humanity. Okay? And so what he's saying, that, that's the whole reason he came. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. To wit that God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world unto himself. God was in Christ. God was in the man Jesus, making a way for you and I to be re reconciled to him. And so when Jesus walks in, in his humanity, he recognizes that these people that are, are cheating other people are hindering the whole purpose that God had for becoming a man. And that was to unite mankind with deity. And so he's saying, don't make my temple my father's house, the place where deity is connected to you, man. Don't make this a den of fees. Don't make this a place of merchandise. Don't buy and sell. Okay? Now, there's three things in this passage in your notes that I want to uh, just touch on here just for a moment. Uh, letter A there. He acted as he did because God's house was being desecrated. David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. What we don't understand is that David had been kept out of the house of the Lord for some time. And so when they, when the doors were open to him again, he was glad that they were open. All through scripture, there are places that are referenced as a house of the Lord or the house of God. You and I come together. This is just a building that was built by Van Man, but because of what resides on the inside of it, this has become the house of God. Because of the, the, the people that enter and the spirit that is here, it becomes something that's beyond just another building. Okay? And this is important to know uh, because of what we're going to talk about here in just a couple of minutes in verses 17 to 22. Jesus is saying, listen, this place should be a place of reverence and holiness and glory and connectedness to God. And you've made it, you've desecrated it by buying and selling and cheating. Uh, letter B there. He acted as he did to show the whole paraphernalia of animal sacrifice was completely irrelevant. Remember that Jesus is peeling back bit by bit all through scripture, really, all through the Old Testament and even into the time of Christ, that the Old Testament, while it was good, it was not best. Okay? If you want to read a great book about better things, read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews contrasts the old to the new. And Jesus is basically coming in here and he's, he's, he's revealing that there is getting ready to be a new for the old. This animal sacrifice is not going to be something that is relevant in just a short amount of time, okay? Again, you have to remember, Jesus 
revealed himself little bit by little bit by little bit and and still is just revealing himself little by little to all of us but the animal sacrifices that were taking place were getting ready to change okay and so when he when he takes this and he wipes it out I believe that those that saw it recognized and understood something's getting ready to be different about this temple, about this sacrificial system. Um, and the reason why I say that is because we can read it then in the disciples' writings after the book of Acts, the Pauline epistles, Apostle Peter, uh, even some of uh, the other ones that are there, we can see that there's slowly a rolling back of the old and a rolling in, if you will, of the new. And then letter C, there he acted as he did because the rulers made the temple divisive. Divisive. They had divided the temple into all different kinds of courts. There was the court of the Gentiles, there was the court of the women, there was the court of the Israelites, there was the court of the priests, and um, all of the haggling about the, the sacrifices were done in the court of the Gentiles. And, and Jesus was saying, listen, the temple is for all nations. Mark uh, eleven seventeen, my house shall be called the house of prayer of all nations. The, the temple, it's one of the reasons why we don't buy and sell here. Okay. I don't have our hospitality team out there uh, selling sacrifices on the way into the sanctuary because the only sacrifice that need, is needed to get into the sanctuary should be the attitude of prayer. Amen. Okay? So, uh, he reveals some of, of the, so that's why I think he gets angry is because of those reasons. And so then in verse number 18, or verse number 17, his disciples remember that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Verse 18, then answered the Jews and said unto him, what sign are you going to show us, seeing that thou doest these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, forty and six years was this temple in building, and you're going to tear it, uh, you're going to rear it up in three days. But he spake of the temple of his body, and when therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and like uh, and like and the word which Jesus had said. So again, verse twenty-two is John is reflecting after you know the seventy years after. I remember when he said that, and, and, and I believed it even more when he said that after three days. There's a couple things in this passage under your notes for the new temple that I want to to bring out to you tonight it is this first of all Jesus obviously was not talking about a physical building when he said tear it down and it's revealed that that's what he says but I want you to I want to ask this question who raises the temple up after three days. Nobody. 
about to reread it again. <laughs> Verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. How can Jesus say that he was going to resurrect himself if he wasn't God? If he was not God manifest in the flesh, if he was not both divine and human or deity and human, if, he, if, if that's not what he was, that's the, I mean, the word incarnation is simply that. Deity has become humanity or taken on humanity, wrote himself in, in flesh, manifest himself. There's all kinds of terms, but it's God. Okay? And so Jesus is revealing in certain ways um, I'm going to take hopefully just three minutes and then we can talk about miracles. Three minutes to just tell you well, let's do it this way. Turn over to John chapter I think it's 22. find it and give it to you. Um, but I'll give you the principle, okay? And then you'll just trust me until I find the scripture. But Jesus tells the disciples, I speak unto you in parables, but the day comes where I shall show you plainly. Okay? He speaks in parable, or he speaks in what can be called veiled speech. Okay? And the reason that he does that, if you remember we talked a couple of weeks ago, of the sin of Satan and the sin of Adam and Eve, which was they wanted to be like God. They 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 out and out said, "I will be like God." Um, Eve did it through their Adam and Eve did it through their actions. Satan did it through his actions and his words. Okay, so when God took on flesh, the Word was God. The Word became flesh. John one fourteen. He could not speak in terms that out and out grabbed a hold of who he really was. Because as a man, God had limited himself to the boundaries of humanity. Okay? What I mean by that is because he became a man, he had to sleep. Mm -hmm. Because he became a man, he had to eat. If you read Philippians chapter 2, which we talked about, I think last week or the week before, it's a kenosis text, if you remember we talked about that, a self-emptying, he emptied himself of all of his uh, prerogatives as God and became in the form of a servant, uh, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, okay? That isn't an aspect of God giving up everything, that was the man, his humanity gave up what he could easily say, I'm God. Okay? He could have stepped on the scene in Bethlehem and said, I'm God as an infant and blown everybody away. 
He could have stepped at it when he was 12 years old in the temple and he could have said, I am God. But he talks in veiled language so as not to do what Adam and Eve did, so not as not to do what Satan did, and that's claim or grasp equality. He became obedient. He became like us so that when he paid the ultimate price, he would usher in an avenue so that you and I could become like him and dwell with him. And so let me put it to you in, in, in a different illustration, okay? If I am me and God is, is the chair, there is a separation between us and pure deity and my humanity cannot dwell together. I would be consumed by pure deity, okay? And so God understood that the only way that he was ever going to create a way for me to get into his presence was if he became like me and yet, but was pure, pure and perfect and sinless and then paid the ultimate sacrifice. And when the penalty was paid for my sins, then all of a sudden, if you can just kind of picture the drawbridge, which is I've, the drawbridge of the humanity of God going down. And now there's this human bridge named Jesus that lets us dwell in purity with the deity of God, if you will. Okay, so when we get to this passage, he's speaking in veiled terms. If, when he says, I will raise it up, he could just as well be saying, I'm going to raise myself up because I'm God. Okay, he could very easily say that, but he doesn't say that he drops these hints in there. And we're going to see later where John or where, where Simon Peter recognizes what he's saying. And when Jesus says, whom do men say that I, the son of man am? And, G, and, and Simon Peter opens his mouth and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay. Whom do men say that I, the son of man am my humanity? And Simon Peter says, you're the son of God, deity, but you're one, God in flesh. And Jesus says, upon that rock, I'll build my church. Okay? And so we see these things happening throughout the book of John. He drops in these little things so that we recognize. That's why I said it's very important to remember John chapter 1. He set so much up, and that's why it took us three weeks. He set so much up in John chapter 1 that's going to carry over from chapter to chapter. And so when he says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And this spake he of the temple of his body. So I find that to be very interesting. And then the last thing here we want to talk about, and we've got about 15 minutes, uh, is the miracles or signs, if you will. And, uh, and that's in, in verse number... Um, where did I read it? Verse number 18. What sign are you going to show us? Okay. When John speaks of Jesus' miracles, he uses the word signs. And there's three different words in the New Testament for the concept of a sign from Jesus. Okay. And, and it's very important to recognize which one because it, they, they mean something different. And so, um, I think I've got this in your notes. Do I? 
Yes, the back page. So the three different words for signs. Number one is the word Terra, and it means a simply a marvelous thing. It's a marvelous thing. It's simply an astonishing happening that leaves your jaw dropping. Okay? That's the first concept of a sign. It just means a marvelous thing. So when we see God just show up, Sunday was a tira when the presence of God just shows up. And it, you just you can't do anything but be amazed at the presence of God. That's, that's a tira sign, if you will. The second uh, word in the Bibles for miracles or signs is the word dunamis. D-U-N-I-O, I've got that written. It means power. I'm looking at my old handout where I I realized probably that I had to spell all these and so I said forget it I'm writing it down this time <laughs> means power this always has the meaning of an effective power that does things and that any man can recognize healing of the blind eyes a mute beginning to talk a lame man rising up those are things that show power that show authority, if you will, that show an act. So when we start seeing the act of God or the acting out of God, that's dunamis. Mm -hmm. When we see the thunderstorm, when we see the, the whirlwind, and when we see all of the things, that those are dunamis. Those are power. And what's really interesting about that is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you want to write that next to your notes. And you shall receive dunamis after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall receive power. It's the same word. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me. What does that mean? What that means is you become a powerhouse with the Holy Ghost. And that Holy Ghost speaks to those that are around you by performing acts. Now that doesn't mean that we just walk around and do whatever we want to do because we have the Holy Ghost. But what that means is you could just be sitting there and somebody might recognize something different about you. There's just an aura. There's a power. Okay? And then number three there, Simeon, it means or reveals the character of the sign giver. It's an action through which it's possible to understand better and more fully the character of the person who did the sign. So when we read in scripture, when the word is Simeon, it's John trying to reveal something about who God was when it was a miracle or a sign from the Lord. What is it, God, that I need to learn from about you when you perform this miracle? And so in any miracle, there are three things. And that's this. There's the wonder that leaves us mind blown. There's the power that makes it effective. And then there's the revealing of the character of the sign giver, if you will. And then we close out the chapter in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. 
But Jesus did not commit himself unto them uh, because he knew all and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Uh, when it says he didn't commit uh, himself unto them, he, he there was a shallow connection, if you will. Unlike the connection that he made with his disciples, which they became his followers and with much stronger commitment, if you will. Um, does anybody have any questions? Or comments? See, while it took us three weeks to do chapter one. <laughs> chapter two is a little bit less. Praise God. All right. Well, if there's no questions, let's just close out in prayer. Amen. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Lord, I'm thankful that you cared enough to reveal how intimate you really want to yes. get with us through this miracle at Cana. And Lord, I'm also thankful, God, that you saw fit to reveal your house to us and your power and who you are. I'm praying, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us in coming weeks as we peel back the layers of this wonderful book that you inspired John to write. And I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, to continue to speak to us each and every day. We we'll give you glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Again, you want to look at John chapter 3 for next week. And uh, we'll be going into that. In Jesus' name.